to Bathsheba. There's no reason to doubt that this was indeed the occasion for the writing of this psalm. 2 Samuel chapter 11 records the well-known sin of David, which was twofold. He had had sexual relations with another man's wife. He had committed adultery. And second, and then upon learning that she was pregnant and that his sin would be found out, he proceeded to manipulate the circumstances so it would appear as though her husband had impregnated her. When that failed, David had the husband, Uriah the Hittite, his friend, killed. Almost a year passed, but David had not acknowledged his sin before the Lord. Then the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David to confront him with his guilt. Having been exposed, David immediately responds, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin, and you shall not die. David wrote Psalm 51 sometime after the events that are recorded in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 as a meditation on the need for forgiveness. In doing so, he was attempting to capture the intensity of a moment. That moment when he confessed and he awaited the word of forgiveness from Nathan. So while in 2 Samuel, it comes one sentence after the next, Psalm 51 is inserted in between those two sentences, a reflection that David writes later on the intensity of the moment, what he was feeling from the time he confessed to that just short time when when Nathan says that he had been forgiven. In verses 1 through 6, the text reads reads this way, Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only, have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, Thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou will make me know wisdom. By humbly confessing his sin to a loving and a holy God, David is now acting wisely and in accordance with the truth. He's come clean. He admits his sin, and not just his sin. He admits his sinfulness and recognizes that God is a just God. He judges fairly. And God's character is not violated in any way, shape, or form when he sits in judgment upon David and his sin. In verses 7 through 12, the text says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice, and hide thy face from my sin, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. David knew that a restoration of fellowship was a prerequisite to spiritual maturity. His greatest desire in life was to serve Yahweh. The position that David was in was the king. I don't believe for a minute that David desired 
to be restored to fellowship so that he could resume the kingship for his own glory or for his own benefit. He wanted to be restored to fellowship so he could resume the service that he was giving to Yahweh through his kingship. And he had to know, understanding what had happened to Saul, when Saul sinned, and we've said before, it almost could be argued that Saul's sin was not as great as David's sin. Both were egregious sins in God's eyes, and all sin is sin in God's eyes. But the difference between David and Saul is that David turns around and comes back to God. Saul doesn't. That's the difference between the two. David saw what happened to Saul. The Holy Spirit is removed from him, and the kingship is removed from him. David does not want that to happen to him. As we saw last week, the prayer in in verse 11, Do not cast me away from thy presence, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. That is a prayer that ought not to be prayed by the church-age believer. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a permanent factor in the believer's life in the church age. It wasn't for David, but it is for us. But we can still pray the desire behind that prayer, because all of us mess up a lot more than we would like to admit. And when we mess up, it's certainly legitimate to pray to God, Lord, I confess my sin, restore me to the joy of my salvation, and if it's at all possible, I would love to continue the ministry that you have me in right now. That's, that desire is certainly legitimate, however to pray that the Holy Spirit not be taken from you is not a prayer that would be valid today. The Holy Spirit's indwelling is permanent in this dispensation. And then, another very important observation from verses 7 through 12. Not only does David acknowledge his sin before God, but he also asks for God to create in him a clean heart. He doesn't want to repeat this action ever. He wants it wiped completely away, and including not just the guilt from the sin, but the desire to even do that sin again. He wants that completely removed from him. We considered Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The prosperity that's mentioned in, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 is not financial prosperity. The prosperity that's mentioned in this verse is spiritual prosperity. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. We can conceal our transgressions from one another. Some of us are really good at that. But in reality, you can't conceal them from God anyway. That's why my friend George Mueller, when he teaches the Africans in Cameroon, he says with regard to confession of sin, tell God what you did. He already knows. He just wants to hear you say it. And sometimes putting things in a, a rather simplistic way like that is helpful. He wants to hear you admit that that's what you did. He who concealed the transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The word compassion there is the very same word that David uses in Psalm chapter 51, verse 1. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgression. This word rakam is a word that's related to the term womb. It's a very tender term that's ordinarily used of a mother's love for a child. This is one of the few places where a maternal characteristic is ascribed to God the Father. The love of a, a mother for a child is one of the deepest bonds of compassion that we could ever imagine. I would add a father and a grandfather too, but this passage is using this in, in a maternal sense. So he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. 
it's one thing to confess a sin. And when we confess a sin, according to 1 John 1, 9, God is faithful and he is just to forgive us that sin and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Every sin, every time it's confessed. When an honest and open admission is made to God, every sin, every time it's confessed. We are automatically restored to fellowship. But if we don't turn away from that sin, if we continue right in it, then the confession is effectively worthless. Let me give an illustration that I think will drive the point home. I hope it's not too offensive. But let's say a man and a woman are in an adulterous affair. They have relations. Both of them confess it immediately after the relations, and then they go out to dinner. They leave. I would propose to you that that confession, from a spiritual standpoint, is effectively worthless. The relationship has to end, and then they will find compassion before God. But you can't confess the act itself, but still be in the relationship and expect God to restore you to his fellowship. doesn't work that way. It adds this phrase, he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. So it's one thing to be restored to fellowship. It's another thing to stay there, to stay in fellowship. We spend a lot of time discussing confession but probably not enough time on the subject of forsaking sinful patterns. We will carry our sinful natures to the grave. We will commit acts of personal sin until the day we die. But that fact should never be used as an excuse for a continual sin pattern in the life. It's not good enough to say, well, that's just the way I am. That's who I am. That's what I do. You know, that's just my area of weakness. That's not good enough with God. God knows that's your area of weakness. He still wants you to turn from it. You confess a sin, you turn away and start moving in a positive direction. The Christian life is not one that is simply one to avoid sin. That's not it. We have these incredible grace provisions on God's part to help us to get over this thing. But a Christian life is not simply waking up every morning and saying, what what sin am I going to avoid today? That's a part of it. And the Scriptures certainly talk about avoiding certain sins. But once we confess the sin, what God wants us to do is to move forward with our spiritual life, not to continually dwell on my past failures. Yes, you failed. Yes, it was terrible. Okay, now confess it and let's get a move on and move in a positive direction rather than a negative direction. A lot of us made New Year's resolutions. I did. Most New Year's resolutions statistically are abandoned by January the 15th. One of the most common New Year's resolutions is to lose, I want to lose 5 pounds, I want to lose 10 pounds, I want to lose 15 pounds. Psychologists have determined that that kind of goal seldom is ever effective. You know why? Because it's a goal of deprivation. And they suggest that a much better goal would be, instead of, I'm going to lose 15 pounds, a much better goal would be, I'm going to get healthy. And I want to be healthy because I want to have more energy, because I want to feel better. Because when I have more energy and I feel better, the psychologists don't do this, and I'm adding this, then I can glorify God in my body in a more effective way. You see the difference in those two goals? One goal is, I want to feel better, I want to have more energy, I want to glorify God in my body. Now, In the process of doing that, I'm probably going to have to eat a little better, and I'm going to have to exercise a little more. And in the process of moving forward in your health life, 
you probably are going to lose that 5, 10, 15 pounds, whatever it was. But do you see the difference in the two? One is a positive, one's a negative. Now, part of, we, we do have to consider the, the loss of the weight. But the greater goal is to move forward with one's health. In the same way, I think the greater goal is to move forward with one's spiritual life, to love God. I would propose a goal that when we get up in the morning, I want to love you today, God. Now, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if I'm loving him, I'm not sinning. But there's a difference, and I hope you see the difference. David was great, I think, because when he failed, he recognized his failure, but he didn't wallow in it. He didn't stay there. He wanted something different and something better. And I'm not talking about psychological Christianity. I'm not talking about that. Certainly we have to deal with sin. There are some churches in the United States, some churches in Houston, that are massive churches that never mention the word sin. And that's a sin. That's a sin, not to mention the word sin, because if you propose to teach the Word of God, it's all over here. I'm just talking about an emphasis. I'm talking about once it's confessed, once we've forsaken it, then realize God is going to show you compassion, that tenderness, that same tenderness that a mother shows a child or a father, or a grandparent, shows that child. That's the same kind of tenderness that God is waiting and willing to show you. Unless you think that this is exclusively an Old Testament concept, Paul speaks of the same issue in Romans chapter 6, when he said, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But, that's the negative, but the positive. Present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So rather than simply trying to avoid, which is part of it, don't get me wrong, trying to avoid failure, we need to look to success in the spiritual life. And success is walking in fellowship with God on a consistent basis. That's success. And then glorifying God in our life. You and I are forgiven and restored to fellowship the moment we confess our sin. That's guaranteed every sin, every time. But there is no spiritual prosperity in confession alone. There is no spiritual prosperity in confession alone. God desires confession with repentance, an acknowledgement of the sin, along with a change in behavior. And now in the closing verses, in verses 13 through 19, The text reads this way. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from my blood guiltness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not desire or delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. By thy favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices, in whole and burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on thine altar. One quick note before we get into the passage itself. There are those Old Testament scholars who believe that verses 18 and 19 are a later addition to this psalm perhaps a later addition from a post-exilic prophet writing, meaning someone who wrote after 586 B.C. in the destruction of Jerusalem. You can see why they might think so. If you look at verse 18, By thy favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Some might think that that means the walls of Jerusalem must not be built up at that time. But I'm not sure that that's 
necessary conclusion from this particular phrase. It could be something along the lines of, oh, Lord, help build up our military. You know, something along those lines. Help protect us. It doesn't mean you have no military at all. It may mean that you just went through the late 70s and the military was gutted. Something like that. Some, somebody might very well have prayed in 1980 who was a military person. Oh, Lord, build up the Army. Build up the Marines. Build up the Navy. Build up the Air Force and the Coast Guard. It doesn't mean there isn't one. It just means that they should be strengthened. I'm of that opinion, although it doesn't take away from the beauty of the text. If someone did add these last two verses, they did it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so I can't argue about that. But these, these final verses, verses 13 through 19, have to do with worship. And what David recognizes is that worship cannot be conducted outside of fellowship with God. True worship. Restoration to fellowship is then a prerequisite to God-honoring worship. Worship that truly praises God cannot be accomplished by the believer out of fellowship with God. That's so important, I want to say it again. Worship that truly praises God cannot be accomplished by the believer out of fellowship with God. In Psalm 24, Another psalm written by David. He writes, speaking of the concept of worship, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? He answers that question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. So what David's saying is that if you want to worship, in the Old Testament context, but it's certainly comes over to the New Testament context as well. The only one who can worship is the only one who could go into tabernacle in David's time, temple or later on, and worship would be one who had clean hands. A clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, someone who's walking in fellowship with God. Restoration to fellowship is a prerequisite to God-honoring worship. I don't know about you, but I found it interesting that once David confesses this sin, he considers himself to have clean hands. We might not. Some people, I'm sure, would have reminded him every time they saw him that he was an adulterer and a murderer. And David would say, I am not an adulterer and a murderer. I committed adultery, and I committed murder, and I confess those. But I am not an adulterer and a murderer. There's two different things. We're going to see this in First Corinthians. That had been confessed, repented of, and he had been restored to fellowship, and he found God's compassion. So David would not have looked, in, looked at himself as an adulterer murderer, even though a lot of other people do. And that's one thing that I'm sure grieves the Holy Spirit terribly. And that is when believers will not let other believers get past, past, confessed sin. It has got to desperately grieve the Holy Spirit because God has forgiven it, and we want to continually to remind them of all the failures that we can possibly remind them of, sometimes jokingly. Sometimes we kind of think it's a little funny. Sometimes they're serious. And it's not funny. Something funny about it. It's a serious sin when you won't let somebody else get past the sins that they've committed. Now, you want to get past yours, right? I want to get past mine. Why don't I let somebody else get past theirs as long as it's been confessed and repented of? Worship in the Bible is the due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their creator. It is an honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to him all the good gifts and all the knowledge of his grace, greatness and graciousness 
that he has given to us. It involves praising him for what he is, thanking him for what he's done, desiring him to get himself more glory by further acts of mercy, judgment, and power, and trusting him with our concern for our own and the future well-being of others. That's worship. And David wants to be able to worship, and he can't worship unless he's been forgiven. He recognizes that restoration of fellowship is a prerequisite to God-honoring worship. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to thee, or possibly it could be rendered, sinners will return to thee. The term translated ways in verse 13 is often used idiomatically in Old Testament and Hebrew Bible for the course of action or conduct. In this context, it refers to instruction about forgiveness. So when David says, I will teach transgressors thy ways, he's saying, listen, once I'm restored to fellowship, I'm going to tell everybody I know exactly how wonderful you are and what a forgiving God you are. I needed to confess this to you, and I needed to turn away from that sin. In context, that's what he's talking about, teaching others the ways of God. But he can't teach about forgiveness until he's been forgiven. That'd be like a, an oncologist smoking a cigarette while he's telling you that you've got lung cancer. It'd be weird, wouldn't it? All David is saying is before he can tell others about the beauty of God's forgiveness, he needs to be restored to fellowship with God. And that's one aspect of worship. Instruction is a very important aspect of worship. Too many today have the idea that worship is restricted to singing praises about God. And that is, without a doubt, an aspect of worship. Singing is an aspect of worship just as much as the instruction of the Word of God is. So we would not be valid in saying, let's skip all that singing, let's get to that as quick as we can get through it, let's get right straight to the meat of this thing, I want to hear the Word talk. Well, that's a mistake. When we open our voices on Sunday morning or sometimes Sunday night and we sing to God, that's a very serious aspect of worship and it should be done in fellowship with God with all of our heart. Expressing with our voices the love we have for God in our souls. But I find a lot of people in our, may I say, in our circles, in the Bible church kind of circles, that think that the praising of God with our lips is nothing. The only thing that counts is the instruction. That's not true. And I want to instruct you tonight that that's not true. Praising God with our lips is an extremely important aspect of worship. As is praying, giving. Fellowship, communion, and water baptism, if that happens to be on the agenda for a particular day. But to neglect to include biblical instruction as an aspect of worship is inexcusable. Absolutely inexcusable. And a lot of churches do it. A lot of churches claim to have worshipped on Sunday morning and there was no biblical instruction that took place at all. I claim to you that their worship was limited that day. Perhaps not totally ineffective, but certainly limited. From the time of the Reformation on, the instruction of the Word of God has been central to worship, but it's not the only aspect of worship. And so David says, once he's restored to fellowship, he's going to teach transgressors the ways of God. And then in verse 14, verses 14 and 15, Deliver me from my blood guiltness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. David had it right. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips that I, 
that my mouth may declare thy praise. He wanted to worship, and he wanted to worship completely, not partially. We should remember that David should have been executed for both the adultery and for the murder of Uriah the Hittite under Mosaic law. Both of those carried death penalties. David seeks deliverance from the criminal penalty as well as spiritual restoration. And he's going to receive both. I've been asked in the past when we covered this passage, why? Why did God not insist that David be executed? Executed? I don't know. But I know David confessed it, and he was restored to fellowship, and he wasn't executed. But David recognized that he deserved to be executed because he said, deliver me from my blood guiltness. But he knew he had execution coming to him. The phrase, joyfully sing, which is what David's going to do once he's restored to fellowship, give hope to all of us who have trouble carrying a tune. The term can also be understood to give a ringing cry, which was a shrieking yell that could have been a lament or a victory shout. The reason I say it should give comfort to all of us is that we praise God with whatever we've been given. We have no excuse for not singing when congregations sing together because maybe our voices aren't what we want them to be. The only excuse for not singing I could think would be if our, if our, voice, if our throat was sore. But other than that, it doesn't matter if you sing like Andrea Bocelli or some punk rocker on the other end of the scale or the guy that did the national anthem at the American football conference championship game, Steven Tyler. It, it doesn't matter. If you're Steven Tyler, you still, and if you're a believer, I don't know if he is or not, but he should sing with that unique voice that he's got. And he should praise God with that unique voice. He should remain silent because he's, he may think that that unique voice may not go with the Andrea Bocelli, Bocelli that's standing right next to him. God wants to hear us from our hearts with whatever he's given us. And I want you to also notice before we leave that subject that all praise is rendered toward God, not to the individual worshiper. In this case, it's about God's righteousness. Worship is always focused upon God and not the worshiper. And then in verse 16, For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. Verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, Thou will not despise. I remember teaching this one time in a different context, not a church context. And a person came up to me who should have known better and said, What do you mean by contrite heart? <laughs> contrite heart. I said, I mean exactly what it says, a contrite heart. And obviously, you don't have one right now. <laughs> but I remained in fellowship, although I'm sure he didn't. <laughs> By thy favor, do good desire and build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on thine altar. The last four verses of this psalm essentially state that when David is forgiven, he will be able to worship properly, correctly. The truth is, God does take pleasure in the sacrificial ritual, for he instructed the Israelites to participate in it. But he does not want it from a believer who is out of fellowship with God. 
is for that reason that we wouldn't knowingly accept money from an unbeliever. I'm not going to go through the congregation on a Sunday morning and say, if, you, you know, if you're an unbeliever, raise your hand, pass the plate by that person. That's, that would be rude and crude. But if somebody wanted to give a chunk of money, say, to the building fund, and I knew that they were an unbeliever, I would have to turn it down. God did desire sacrifice, the sacrificial system. He's one to set it up. But he only wanted a sacrificial system when that sacrificial system was being participated in by a person who was walking in faith with God. That's why David starts off by saying, you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. But then later on he's going to say, we're going to give the burnt offerings. There's no general repudiation of the sacrificial system here, only a comment about the inappropriateness of hypocritical worship. While we don't offer animal sacrifices today, in ritual worship, we do participate in ritual. Communion service is one of them. And we talk about when we do communion service on the second Sunday of every month that we need to be walking in fellowship with God. Otherwise, there's actually discipline for the believer, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. To participate in communion not only makes it a fair where we could be out of fellowship, not only makes it something whereby we could be disciplined, but also makes it a meaningless exercise. God desires attitude before action. Ritual without reality is meaningless. The idea of a contrite heart is a submissive heart. It's not a self-willed or an arrogant heart, but a humble, if I could use the word in New American Standard, contrite and submissive heart. A broken heart is the only damaged offering an Israelite could bring. In verse 18, David is comparing the walls of Jerusalem to the real defense of the nation and the guarantee of God's divine favor. David's forgiveness and restoration would be good for the nation. Now, he's not saying this in an arrogant way, but for the king to be restored would be a good thing for Israel. It would be the true and moral defense of the nation. In the history of Israel, as the king went, so went the nation. So it's important that David says, Finally, verse 19, David wraps up by concluding that once the heart is right with God, then rituals will be meaningful. In this wonderful psalm, we were privileged to get a glimpse, just a glimpse, into the heart of a man who was a man after God's own heart. David failed miserably. He sinned greatly. But once he was prompted, he confessed his sin, and he repented of it. Restored to fellowship, he could return to effective spiritual service. Restored to fellowship, he could return to God-honoring worship. No matter how badly you might have failed as a Christian, you too can follow the path that's set by David in this psalm and receive complete restoration with all the benefits that follow. As we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins.